Chapter Twenty Seven of The Web of the Golden Spider. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Web of the Golden Spider by Frederick Oren Bartlett. Chapter Twenty Seven Dangerous Shadows. In the narration of what had befallen her while in the care of Sorez, Wilson came to have a new conception of the man. With the exception of the fact that Sorez had considered his own interest alone in bringing the girl down here, and that he had lured her on by what he knew to be a deliberate lie, Sorez had been as kind and as thoughtful of her as her own father could have been. After their imprisonment in Bogova and while in hiding from Wilson, he had supplied the girl with the best of nurses and physicians. Furthermore, in order to make what recompense he could to her in case of an accident to him or in the event of the failure of their mission, he had, before leaving Bogova, made his will, bequeathing to her every cent of his real and personal property. The chief item of this was the house in Boston which he had purchased as a home for himself and niece a few months before the latter's death. In addition to this, he had in the end made the supreme sacrifice. He had given his life. Sitting there in the starlight, she told Wilson these things, with a sob in her voice. And so he kept his word after all, didn't he? He brought me to him. The older man by her side looked up at her. My daughter, he murmured, my daughter. She placed her arm over his shoulder, scarcely able to believe the good fortune which had at once placed her here between her father and her lover. "'The golden idol did some good after all,' she whispered. "'The idol?' asked her father. "'What idol?' "'You remember nothing of an image?' broke in Wilson. "'An image? An idol? I have seen them. I have seen them, but—' but I can't remember where." He spoke with a sort of childlike, apologetic whine. Wilson hesitated a moment. He had brought the idol with him after finding it in the hut where Manning had carried it from the raft, apparently unconsciously, and had taken it, fearing to leave it with Flores. He had intended to throw it away in the mountains, in some inaccessible place, where it could never again curse human lives. This image ought to be final proof as to whether or not Manning could recall anything of his life as a priest of the sun-god or not. If the sight of this failed to arouse his dead memory, then nothing ever could. Of all the things in this life among these mountains, no one thing had ever figured so prominently or so vitally in his life as this. About this had centered all his fanatical worship, all his power. As Wilson rose to get the image from where he had hidden it near Stubbs, the girl seized his arm, and bending far forward, gasped, "'The shadow! Did you see it?' Wilson turned with his weapon cocked. "'Where?' he demanded. But underneath the trees where she had thought she saw a movement, all was quiet again, all was silent. With a laugh at her fears, Wilson secured the image and brought it back. He thrust it towards Manning. 
It was clearly visible in the moonlight. The girl shrank a little away from it. Oh, she uttered, I don't like to look at it tonight. In the dull silver light it appeared heavier and more somber than in the firelight. It still sat cross-legged with the same cynical smile about its cruel mouth, the same bestial expression about the brow, the same low-burning fires in the spider-like eyes. As Wilson and her father bent over it, she turned away her head. Once again she seized Wilson's arm and bade him look beyond the thicket in front of them. "'I saw something move. I am sure of it.' "'You are a bit nervous, I'm afraid,' he said tenderly. "'If only you would lie down for the rest of the night.' "'No, no, David. I am sure this time.' "'Only a shadow. There is a light breeze.' "'I couldn't see anything, but—' It didn't feel like a shadow, David. You felt it? Has the image... He asked a bit anxiously. No. Oh, I can't make you understand, but I'm sure something moved in the bushes. Stay close to me, then, he laughed quietly. He turned back to Manning, who was turning the image over and over in his hands with indifferent interest. To him it was nothing more than a curio, a metal doll. But when he caught the glint of a moonbeam on the jeweled eyes, he bent over it with keener concern. He raised it in his hands and stared steadily back into the cold eyes. This stare soon became fixed, and Manning began to grow slightly rigid. Wilson snatched the object from his hands. For a moment the man remained immovable, then he rubbed his hand over his brow, muttering incoherently to himself. This nervous symptom disappeared and Manning apparently instantly forgot the idol again. He called for his daughter. She came closer to his side and he rested his head against her shoulder. "'Dear father,' she murmured affectionately. "'I... I can't think.' he said. Don't try, Daddy. Wait until we get out of here and you are all well again. If I could reach my ship, he muttered. What ship, Daddy? Why, my own, the Joe Manning. That took her back to the time she was a very little girl. She remembered now that he had named the ship after her, the last ship which he had sailed out of Newburyport. Poor old Daddy! What a different man he was this moment from him who had held her in his arms and kissed her with tears rolling down his bronzed cheeks. It wrenched her heart to watch him sitting there so listlessly, so weakly, so little himself. The fear was growing in her heart that he never would be the same again. Almost... Almost it was better to remember him as he was then than to know him as he sat there now. Had it not been for the comfort, for the joy of another order, for the safety she felt in this younger man by her side, her heart would have broken at the sight. If only she could have found him during those few days he was in Boston, when the crystals had first shown him to her, when he must have passed within a few feet of her, 
it might not then have been so difficult to rouse him. But at that time he would not have known his own. A bedlam of raucous, clamorous shrieks settling into a crude sort of war cry brought all four of them to their feet. Wilson thrust the girl back of him towards the cave-like formation behind them. This effectually protected them in the rear and partly from two sides. Stubbs swept the bag of jewels into his arms and carried them to one corner of this natural excavation. Then he took his position by the side of Wilson and Manning, who was unarmed. The three waited the approach of the unseen demons. Not a light, not the glint of a weapon could be seen. But before their eyes, in and out among the trees making up the dense growth, shadows flitted back and forth in a sort of ghost dance. In addition to the hoarse shouting, the air was rent from time to time by the sound of a blast as from a large horn. The effect of this upon Manning, who had been thrust behind them by Wilson, was peculiar. At each blast he threw back his head and sniffed at the air as a war-horse does at the sound of the bugle. His eyes brightened, his lean frame quivered with emotion, his hands closed into tight knots. The girl, observing this, crept closer to him in alarm. She seized his arm and called to him, but he made no response. "'Father! Father!' she shouted above the din. He started forward a pace, but she drew him back. Seeing her, he came to himself again for a moment. She scarcely knew him. The old look of intensity, which strained almost every feature out of the normal, had transformed him. He stood now, as it were, between two personalities. He partially realized this, for he stepped forward behind Wilson and shouted, "'They come!' They come. I I think I can stop them for a little. If if I do, don't delay. Don't wait for me. Wilson thought he rambled. Do you hear? Quick, tell me. Yes, shouted Wilson. The din seemed to be approaching in an ever-narrowing circle. It came from all sides, a noise so deafening so full of unusual sounds that it was in itself terrifying. Again came the blast, followed by another and another. Manning caught sight of the image upon the ground. It acted like magic. He snatched it up, but the girl, regardless of danger, ran to his side. "'Don't!' she cried in a panic. "'What is the matter, father?' He looked down at her with eyes which scarcely reflected any recognition. "'Don't go, father. Don't you know me? Don't you know your daughter? See, I am Joe. Joe. Do you understand?' Even in the midst of this other danger, the noise and imminent peril, the two men heard and turned away their heads at the sight with throats straining with emotion. Manning looked back with hardly a gleam of his true self showing in his eyes. And yet there was something left which made him pause, which in one flash brought him back for a second. He stooped and kissed her. Then he raised himself and, facing the two men, 
pointed towards the woods behind them. "'Go!' he commanded. Another blast, and he clutched the idol to his breast. He raised his eyes to the east, and the three stood dumbfounded. From his throat there issued a cry so wild, so weird, that it checked their breathing. Instantly following, there was silence from the shadows. One, two, three, four seconds passed. Still that silence which was nerve-wracking in its intensity. Then a cry rang out from among the trees, so piercing that the girl put her arm up over her eyes as though to ward off a blow. A hundred forms appeared from the trees. Stubbs and Wilson raised their rifles. But with a sweeping motion back with his hand, the priest bade the two men pause. He disappeared into the shadows, where he was greeted with a sort of paean of joy. Then silence. Then a few sharp-spoken words. Then silence again. Wilson, scarcely believing this was not some evil dream, gripped Stubbs's arm. "'Come!' he gasped. "'Let's get out. This—this this is hell!' He took the half-swooning girl in his arms. "'Get a grip on yourself, Joe, just for a little. We must go at once.' "'But, Daddy! Daddy!' Wilson closed his eyes as though to shut out the sight he had last seen when looking into the face of that man. "'It is better as it is.' Stubbs, still with a care for the jewels, helped Wilson on with his belt and fastened his own into place. He had had a good rest and felt comparatively fresh, but the others tottered as they walked. Into the dark among the trees they went, following the faint trail which led towards the big mountains, which were still a barrier. On, on, on until the girl dropped into her tracks from exhaustion, and Wilson beside her. For six hours Stubbs maintained a grim watch over the two, his rifle across his knees, hoping against hope for one bit of good luck more, that if so be there was another attack he might have at least one fair shot at the priest. Whether the man was the girl's father or not, and he privately doubted the story, he felt that this was the only thing which would ever take from his mouth the taste of rope. But he was disappointed. The morning broke fair and peaceful with, so far as they could see, the birds and squirrels the only occupants of this forest besides themselves. In fact, the next three days, save for the strain of being constantly alert, were a sort of idol for Wilson and Joe. They had little difficulty in shooting sufficient food for their needs, and water was plentiful. The trail led through a fairland, gay at this time of year, with many flowers. The girl, to be sure, sobbed at first a good deal in the dark, but the two men knew nothing of this. Soon, after the first acute pain of the personal loss, she was able to reason a little with herself. It seemed to her then, remembering how much a child he was when with her, and how strong and powerful he looked as he stepped into the woods, that perhaps, after all, he would be happier with his many children than with her. 
Then always there was the opportunity of coming back to him, coming under better auspices and with better opportunities for really bringing him to his own. It was this last thought that finally brought her real consolation. Perhaps, she said to Wilson, hesitating a trifle in fear that he might not approve of the suggestion, perhaps some day we can come back here to him, David. I had thought of it, dear. He saved our lives. If he had remained, not one of us would have got out of here. That in itself is enough to make us everlastingly beholden to him. But... He paused. I think, dear heart, that it is kinder to let him remain even among heathen people, a strong man with power, than to bring him back a child to die. He chose for himself, David. Yes, and was able to realize and be glad that he had been given another chance to do for his daughter. The girl thought a moment, then her face brightened. That, that alone makes the trip worthwhile. That and this, he answered, drawing her to his side. Yes, she whispered, and in a way he gave me you. He gave me you. End of chapter 27 Recording by Roger Moline